What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. Today is just one of those days where I am feeling myself. I'm feeling confident, beautiful, strong. And coincidentally, this morning I read a headline that caught my attention. Women are more likely to bag $100,000 jobs despite fewer applications. Specifically, fewer women than men apply for jobs that pay an annual salary of $100,000 or more, but those who do are more likely to get hired than their male counterparts, according to fresh data from recruiting software company ICIMS. And after reading that headline, I felt like that kombucha meme. At first I was like, yay, that's awesome. And then I was like, wait, hold up. Why are we applying less often? Why are we doing that? Because basic logic would imply that if we're applying less and getting the job more often, wouldn't applying at an equal frequency as men mean even more women get high paying jobs? I was very torn. And reading these news articles always brings me back to this one thought. Why weren't we taught to do this as young women in school? Because this certainly was not on the syllabus. But I believe in lifelong learning. And today I'm going to teach you about the confidence gap, working moms and building a better future. And there's nobody better to help guide us than New York Times bestselling author, viral speaker, and founder of Girls Who Code. Everyone, please welcome Reshma Saujani. Hi, it's so great to be here. Oh my gosh, Reshma, thank you so much for being on the pod. I am really, really stoked to chat with you. I find you to be so inspiring. I'm a big fan. And I want to dive right in. Your first, I will will call it the claim to fame, was being the founder of Girls Who Code. Why did you decide to start that? How did you know how to build it? Because there certainly isn't a college course on how to start your own nonprofit 101. Well, look, I'll let you in on a little secret. It was not my dream. It wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I thought I was an activist my whole life. I always joked that like I traded my pacifier for a bullhorn. Uh, (laughs) Nonprofits were really slow and they weren't the things that you start if you want to make real big change. But I found myself in 2010, I had just run for office and I got crushed. And I knew that I didn't want to go back to the private sector, that I wanted to do something. And I had this idea about teaching girls to code. And I kind of decided that like, after I lost that race, that like, okay, maybe I need to be the one to really go and build it and blow it up. And as I was kind of convincing my own board to let me be the CEO, because I would be the first ever CEO. I remember one of my board members, who was the CTO of Twitter at that time, Adam Messenger, he kind of looked at me and he said, how do I know that you you only want this job because you didn't get the real job you wanted? And if you know, mm. like that's all I needed to hear. I was like, all right, I'm not just going to run this thing. I'm going to like <laughs> blow it up. And that's exactly what I did. And I think in many ways, like I made Girls Who Code not into a nonprofit, but a movement. And I would say that from the beginning. And I, I, I set out audacious goals and I took, you know, positions. I picked fights with President Trump, right? I mean, I <laughs> went there. Yeah. And so it didn't feel like a nonprofit and it wasn't just a nonprofit. And I think we redefined what it meant to be a social entrepreneur and a social activist. And what was your ultimate goal with Girls Who Code? Obviously, the name kind of speaks for itself. We are teaching young women to learn how to code. But what was the what was the hope? that like a young woman who is in this program does what? Yeah, I mean, I think you can appreciate this. Like, you know, I'm the daughter of refugees and my dad would always say to me, Beta, you have three choices. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. <laughs> 
when you come to yeah. nothing and mm-hmm. you come to a country where you have nothing, all you want is for your kids to have something just a little bit more than you did. Mm-hmm. So it was about, to them, to my Indian father, it was about engineers, doctors, lawyers. That's how you march up into the middle class. Yeah. For me, in 2010, I'm, I'm going into these coding classrooms. I'm just seeing boys. There's no girls. And I'm seeing also at that time in 2010, tech was blowing up, right? Google, you know, Twitter, Instagram, and those jobs, you made $120,000 a year. So I kept thinking about those girls who looked like me, who wanted to march up into the middle class and was like, you got to learn how to code because they pay a lot of money. And that was, the impetus was about opportunity. You know, it was about freedom over your economic future. It was about the fact that like, because no one knew how to code, not a rich girl from the Upper East Side or a poor girl yeah. from Queens, that maybe for once in our country, we can start from the same place and everybody would have a chance at getting to the middle class. That's why wow, I like chills that you just said that. And you mentioned, you know, marching towards economic freedom. Were you ever worried about money when building Girls Who Code? Because, you know, typically jobs that require coding abilities, you know, do pay more, but running nonprofits doesn't always pay. Oh, Lord, I was always worried about money. I'm always worried about money. (laughs) You know, look, you know, when I started Girls Who Code, I was broke. I had like not worked for the year before my campaign. You know, I had $300,000 in student loan debt. And, you know, I didn't come from wealth. And so like the idea of starting something from scratch, right? And so that, you know, those first couple of years of Girls Who Code, I hustled for every dollar, for every penny. And it was stressful because now it wasn't just paying my salary, but it was paying my employee's salary. So I had this thing, you know, Vivian, that like I would always try to have enough money in the bank and then raise for a year ahead. And whatever I raised, I would save. I was like a good, good drafty girl. I would save like 20%, (laughs) you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I treated very much the organization like it was my own balance sheet. I never wasted money. I never spent money on things that like we didn't need. I was always, always, always frugal because I knew, you know, similar to like, I think how my family felt like that it could go at any time. You could have a catastrophic event and you could be back where you were. You came to this country with $20 in your pocket. It was the same thing of how I felt with Girls Who Code. And now I feel about my organization Moms First is that one day a funder could decide not to write you a check. And it's already so hard to raise for women and girls organizations. I mean, it's impossible where we put the least amount of our resources. So yeah, I mean, that is what's really stressful, to be honest, about being a nonprofit leader is that you're always worried about money. Mm -hmm. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. 
Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. You know, you talk really candidly about how you ran for public office and it didn't go as you would have hoped for you to then bounce back and be confident enough to start, you know, one of the most well-known, revered, beloved, you know, nonprofits in the country and then go on to write these books and do all these amazing things. You know, the only word that really comes to my mind is confidence. And you gave this incredible TED Talk while you were building out Girls Who Code. And you mentioned how you noticed something you know, let's call it weird. Do you mind walking us through that? I think this will be really inspiring yeah, for the listeners. I call it my undue story. So, you know, when I got an opportunity to talk at TED, it's like, if you're like a, a football player, it's like being invited to go to the Super Bowl, right? It's like, <laughs> right. And if you're going to go, you better bring it because you can mm-hmm. hold something on the TED stage that can reverberate everywhere. Mm-hmm. And obviously I am obsessed about closing the gender gap. And I, I kept thinking about this, the story that every Girls Who Code teacher would tell me. And it went something like this, right? During our first week, right, girls that come to our program, none of them have coded before. So they're all coming from like a baseline knowledge of like zero. And so during that first week, they're kind of learning the basics. And every teacher, whether they were in Kansas, New York, Oakland, or like Miami would tell me the same story that a student would call their teacher over and she'd say, I don't know what code to write. And the teacher would look at her screen and she'd see a blank text editor. So if she didn't know any better, she thought that her students spent the past 20 minutes just staring at the screen. But when she pressed undo a few times, she saw that her student actually wrote code and then deleted it. So instead mm-hmm. of saying to her teacher, hey, I know I wrote this line of code, maybe the semicolon's in the wrong place, she rather show nothing at all, perfection or bust. I tell the story on the TED stage and I am inundated by women who say, I do this too. By men who say, my daughter does this too. And what I mean by that is like, whether you were a doctor, a lawyer, a dancer, an artist, a teacher, somewhere along the line, you had learned how to delete the code of your life. Somewhere along the line, you had learned to give up before you even tried. You had learned to not raise your hand and ask that question because you didn't want to seem like you didn't know the answer. And because we were all striving to be perfect, we were holding ourselves back from our fullest potential. And that revelation is what inspired me to write my book, Brave Not Perfect, and kind of launch this like movement, you know, to inspire people to be brave, not perfect. And and in particular, unlearn perfectionism. Yeah. So you have this experience, all these teachers are telling you this. What did that demonstrate to you that led to Brave Not Perfect? That we're socialized to be perfect. And it starts at like the youngest of possible ages. Like I always say, like sit on any playground in America. And we tell our boys, right, to climb to the top of the monkey bars and just jump, Mm -hmm. right? Fail, take risks. I mean, be bold. But with our daughters, we say, be careful, honey. Don't swing too hard. Mm -hmm. Did you take that toy away from her? Give it back. We start when our daughters are born that we want to wrap them up with physical, you know, like with bubble wrap, I always say. And it's because we want to physically protect them. You know, a friend of mine had a baby and her baby was learning how to walk. And she was like, I was, I was behind her being like, be careful, honey, be careful, honey. And she's like, and then your face popped in my head. And it's, I, I switched that to like, go baby, go baby. Right. But it's like immediately you don't want them to get hurt. And then that that fear of them getting physically hurt extends to you don't want them to get emotionally hurt. And so when they're in eighth grade and they go to gymnastics class and they can't do a cartwheel and they come back crying, you're like, it's okay, honey. You don't have to go to gymnastics. 
I'll put you into soccer. So they never mm. learn that fe- that feeling of like resiliency. And so we start getting addicted to the things that we're good at. We get addicted to people saying that we're a good girl for, our, for you know, for like, again, we learn how to make ourselves small. And yeah. you know, the repercussions of all this is enormous. Like, uh, you know, there's a study that shows that when women declare economics as a major, if they get a B, a B in an introductory level course, they drop out, Right. Whereas boys are like, I got a D, I'm running for president, right? I mean, completely different ramifications. You know, perfectionism just plays this enormous role on our mental health, on our educational choices, on our leadership choices. And so we got to reorientate ourselves away from perfectionism to bravery. And I say, as I'm talking about this, baby, I want everyone to hear me. It's not your fault. It's how you've been raised. It's the everything. And it it extends into this moment that we're in now, which I'm like so far, you know, it's like, even as we're adults, right? What do you get? Hey, Vivian, do a power pose to give you confidence. Let me teach you how to have more confidence. Let me teach you, you know, like we're constantly trying to fix you and we're mm-hmm. giving women the message that something is wrong with you and we have to correct it. And so we're mm-hmm. constantly on this treadmill towards just being perfect and having no flaws and having no insecurities. And instead of like taking a step back and say, Oh, the problem, I mean, it's not me, you know, with all due respect to Taylor yeah. Swift, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I'm not the problem. It's not me. Yeah. <laughs> First and foremost, okay, next time just at me because I did drop my econ major when I got a ah. C plus intro class. Oh my gosh. I'm like so embarrassed to tell you that. But that is really insightful. And I guess my dumb question is, how can we be brave? How can we like unlearn what we've been taught for our entire lives? Yeah, I joke. It's like we learn how to be brave by being like Cardi B, like no fucks given. You know what I mean? (laughs) It it, it extends because we care too much about what people think. And again, we've been raised to do that. Like I always joke, like you you go to like an eighth grade, you know, award ceremony and like the boys win awards and they're like dabbing, you know what I mean? And what do we say? Me? 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 Right? We don't learn our swag yeah. because we we don't know how to take a compliment. Right? We don't know how to take a compliment. We don't know how to like take our victory lap. We don't know how to celebrate. And because we care too much about what people think, and it, that's like to me when I talk about bravery, it's not like saving a baby from a burning building. It's like when you're walking down the street and someone bumps into you, you don't say I'm sorry. No, they bumped into oh, you. That. Right? How many times <laughs> you do that? I do it all the time. Right? Yeah. It's again. It's like how many times do we silence ourselves because again we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Feelings, or we worry about what they think about us. And it's like, that's just basic things, right? You know, the second thing is, is about, you know, really kind of learning to be imperfect. Like we mm-hmm. think so many times, like, like, oh my God, if my email has a typo in it and I send it out, people are going to just fire me right? Like we go from zero to 20 because we're so, again, worried about what people think. So we do certain things to like the ninth degree, whether it's reading our emails a hundred times, whether it's baking cookies instead of just bringing store-bought cookies to our kid's birthday party, right? We, We add on all these other tasks because we care about what people think and we want to be perfect, that we leave no time for ourselves or anything else. And so how do you start unlearning those things and orientating yourself for bravery. You know, one of the things that I think I feel like has really helped me in really going from like, again, this like Asian American young woman who like couldn't even raise her hand in class, who so desperately wanted to fit in and didn't fit in because I grew up again in a town that didn't look like me and that didn't want me, you know, Mm -hmm. and how did I get to become this woman today where I literally, whatever I want to say, I say, whatever I want to do, I 
do? And how did I get there? And again, it's it's a, by being in so many rooms with so many people and recognizing you're not smarter than me. You don't got anything on me, nor any of the girls that I teach. And for so long, everything I've read, everything I've been taught has been pushing me to think that I'm broken, that I need fixing, that I need tweaking and tuning. And I don't. I've always mm-hmm. been enough. I've always had enough, but it's almost like rewiring ourselves, reprogramming ourselves because we've been so deeply programmed from the time that we're little and it's not serving us in any way or capacity or else we would run this shit and we don't and we should. And I'd love to ask, and I know I've always been told like, this is a rude question. You shouldn't ask this. Like, you know, I'm, how old are you? When did you figure this out in your life? And is it ever too late? Because I think a a big concern that I get a lot from the listeners and the BFFs is like, I'm already in my 30s, 40s, 50s. Is it too late for me to do this? I'm 47. I don't think I, I think I started to learn it when I lost that first congressional race. So I think you learn it when you have a big failure and you realize that failure doesn't break you. Yeah. So that was to me, my first like experience with it. Then I think secondly, it was really about being in rooms and being exposed to lots of people that I had put on pedestals and recognizing you are doing what? And, you know, the third thing is, is like, I think a lot of this too is like, you know, like teaching myself to do certain things that did kind of build my sense of like, oh, I got this. So like, you know, when I used to give a public speech, I would just write it down and I would memorize it. Yeah, that's what I do now. (laughs) Right? But what happens when you do that is you just, you don't connect. You sound like a robot. So I started kind of forcing myself to just talk from the, you know, from the hip, right? Just talk about how I felt. And I would do that through storytelling. So it didn't feel like I was talking about me, but I was telling you a story. And that just started, again, kind of building my sense of like, like when you can publicly speak like that, I don't know, it just built an enormous amount of confidence for lack of a better word, or just recognition that like you, you can speak on anything, you know, or do anything. So that was really, I think, critical. So again, I think all these like tips and tricks, I think the other thing is like, you know, putting yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, I realize that like, one of the reasons, you know, even stepping off of Girls Who Code is like, I was getting real comfortable. I knew how to do that job. I knew how to be the CEO of Girls Who Code, right? And I wasn't feeling terrified. There's something about waking up, like right now I wake up every day and I'm so freaking afraid that I'm not going to, that I'm going to fail, that I'm not going to achieve my mission, that I'm not going to be able to make payroll, that I'm not like, what I'm saying is not clicking and the other person's like, what is she talking about? But it's like that fear is what makes me feel so damn alive and (laughs) me really confront my like my my fear <laughs> my fear yeah. makes me confront my fear right it's fuel it checks me that I am still not playing it safe and then that I have a chance then to operate at my fullest potential that's awesome with LinkedIn jobs we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You know, we're talking about confidence and bravery, and we're talking about how to raise the next generation of smarter, younger daughters. I recently saw you do an interview, and you said 
three words that I don't think I've heard come out of someone's mouth who has your pedigree, your credibility, or your position. You said, I was wrong. And at the beginning of your career, you were one of the leaders in what I'd like to call is the anything you can do, I can do better movement. The girl boss era, the CEO era. And we told women that to break glass ceilings and succeed in their careers, all they needed to do was like dream big, raise their hands, lean in. And then you took it all back. Why? Yeah, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. And it's weird. I always think like, how did I miss it all? Well, it's so powerful to even just hear you say that because of all the things that you've done. It's weird to hear people who we consider as smart or just powerful say that they're wrong. And I, I appreciate that you're able to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's also, you also realize how, even as the old, that you don't know everything, that the old, <laughs> that like you can have a profound experience that makes you look at the world in such a different place. I'm actually in a, in a spiritual journey in this moment where I'm having kind of, it's similarly on another topic, but like going back to this, the pandemic was just such an eye opener for me because I really did believe that like, if you just worked hard, you can achieve anything and anything. I would say that, like, you know, I'd literally be at a conference and I may have like come from breastfeeding my baby in the green room. And a young woman would say to me, Mr. Johnny, Mr. Johnny, how do you balance being a mom and a CEO? And I would look at her and I'd almost be annoyed. And I would wave my hand and I'd be like, don't worry about it. Just keep doing your thing. And so, you know, I had bought into that whole thing that, well, if you got a mentor and you got a sponsor and you color coded your calendar, you too can be a CEO. <laughs> And it was a, it was a lie, a big lie, a strategy, a tactic that we had been putting on women for 30, 40, 50 years to basically distract them, to make them focus on what are their perceived inadequacies to distract them from the fact that we have structural blocks that are preventing women from reaching and achieving their fullest potential it has nothing to do with them. And I think everything to do with three big things, paid leave, affordable childcare, and pay inequity. Because look, if you were to take the trajectory of most young women in America, they're born, they crush it in middle school, they crush it in high school, they're the valedictorian, they go to college and they're still crushing it, right? Yeah. They get into, you know, any job, whether it's a financial service job, a law firm job, maybe even an incubator, and they're crushing it there too. Maybe they even buy a house before, you know, I mean, they get have a partner, but then they get married and they have a kid. And all of a sudden they go from being qualified, prepared, the best to suddenly losing, you know, again, percentages of their income, depending on every child that they have, you know, they don't get the same promotions, the same opportunities. They're doing two thirds of basically uh, unpaid labor while trying to maintain their job. And the world is telling them, what's well, your fault? If you're having a hard time, you're just not trying hard enough. And, and, and yeah. it's all this perpetual kind of hamster wheel that we put women on. They're, they're, set, they're set up to fail over and over and over again. Yeah. And we refuse to kind of fix it because we're, again, still focused on telling them to get a mentor and a sponsor rather than giving them paid leave or affordable childcare. Two things are proven to basically shrink the gender pay gap. And so we know what the solution is. And it's, and again, I mean, I talk about this in terms of like the pay gap, right? Like how many times when you're, when we're talking about the pay gap, you're basically hearing, Hey, Vivian, you just got to negotiate better. Stand in there, <laughs> practice what you're going to ask for and just ask. How many times have you been told that? So we're telling one woman at a time, it's your fault. You're not negotiating for yourself. You don't have any confidence. You just got to ask for what you need rather than telling companies, hey, get an algorithm and take out your damn bias. Like I was saying, like, I'll give you one of any of my students can basically help you get rid of all of your bias in like five minutes. 
So instead of the girl can code this, one woman at a, yeah, a girl can code this. So instead of basically making it one woman at a time and taking us hundreds of years, as every kind of think tank tells you, before we basically have pay parity, they, it's literally an algorithmic solution. I'm sure ChatGPT can fix it for you, like literally, you know, in a second. <laughs> but we refuse to do it, and we keep pushing this other narrative that's just like again not true. Or not scalable. So it, I mean, it's it's really fascinating when you take a step back and you see how so many things are that way, right? And like we've been falling for. I felt for it. We've been falling for it. Um, yeah. And thinking that we're th- we're the problem. Can you walk us through? You said the top three ways that we're disadvantaging working women were yeah paid leave. paid leave. So we are the only industrialized nation that doesn't offer paid leave. The vast majority of women go back to work ten days after having a baby. The vast majority of women. What? don't have access. Yeah. Don't have access to paid leave. We treat paid leave in our country as a job perk rather than a human right. So if you have paid leave, it's because your company provides that. We don't have a federal paid leave policy that mandates it. So you think about the average teacher, the average nurse, they are, the average teacher is trying to only get pregnant in the summertime because that's when she has time off. Think about that. Like think about how crazy that is. And again, anyone who's trying to get pregnant, how impossible that is. But the people that we cherish the most are nurses, our teachers, our care providers. Like they are going back to work while they're in a diaper because they just had a baby. And it's unconscionable, but we do nothing about it. And again, we're the only like what are the only industrialized nation where that's that's the case. Secondly, we're the only industrialized nation that doesn't have affordable childcare. So the vast majority of women, again, work to work. So think about it, that yeah. you're in a partnership, you both do the math and you're like, wait a minute, I'm paying X amount of dollars for childcare. I'm making X amount of dollars. I'm actually making more. I'm spending more to my childcare than working what's going on yeah. here. And again, because of the pay gap, the motherhood penalty, which the minute you become a mother, you lose your salary. It's always going to be you and not if you're in a heteronormative relationship, not him. Yeah. And again, in this moment, this kind of recessionary period where, you know, you're, 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 we're kind of in this challenging place economically, 40% of parents are in debt because of childcare. You know, the largest actual cost sector, you know, uh, in, in a family is there, is not their mortgage, is the cost of childcare. And that's so crazy. It's wild, right? It's wild. And it's the reason why, again, you don't have paper, you don't have gender equality because- yeah. If 40 million women become a mother at some point, right, they will be faced with this dilemma. And so you never get back, right? Because you're not making your fair share, you're paying astronomically for childcare. And so I argue, you know, childcare should be treated like healthcare, right? It's mm-hmm. something that your employer basically has to pay for because it's a necessity in order for you to work. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. What do you recommend we do? So like we've launched this thing called the National Business Coalition on Child Care to basically start pushing companies to providing child care as an HR benefit. So here's what I want everyone to do. Just like many of you went into your employer's office and you said, hey, as you were interviewing for a job, what's your fertility benefits? Mm-hmm. You know, basically five years ago, like 0% of companies paid for IVF. Now, right. a lot of people do, right? Because we started asking about it. We need to do the same thing about paid leave and not just asking for paid leave for yourself, but gender neutral paid leave. I want to make sure that men are taking it for the same amount of time as we're taking it. That's the only way we're going to close that gap, right? I told you that two thirds of caregiving work is done by women. We need that ratio to move to like at least 50-50. So we got to start asking about these benefits. What are you doing about childcare? What is your, that's important to me. You know what I mean? When you're getting surveyed about what are the things you care about, don't put gym membership, put childcare. <laughs> you don't have a child because you want to preserve optionality. Cool. I love that. And sorry, I cut you off. Third thing disadvantaging women motherhood penalty pay equity right which is like essentially like if you if you don't get paid fairly and that happens you know so like again and i think 22 states young women are making more than men so what's also happening which is new is that before you make a child you're actually making more than men Mm -hmm. and then when you have a child you basically lose that competitive edge and so we've got to close the motherhood penalty which again is like an algorithmic solution Like any company can go in and audit and say, I got 10 employees. She works at this position. He works at the exact same position. Why is he making 8% more than her? Let me close the gap. And so, you know, again, policies like salary transparency, you know what I mean? Different states are passing laws that you basically have to post how much what the range is, and then making sure that you get rid of things like you don't penalize women who are often the ones that are taking paid leave for the time they take off to take care of a child that when they come back to work, they're coming in at the same position and the same salary as when they left. That's very, very true. And you mentioned losing their edge. I don't know the exact stat, but I saw somewhere that it was like men who have families or children make more than single men, whereas single women make more than moms who have children and families. Like what can the men in our lives who love us do to step up and help make this less of a burden on women, but also like help us reach like gender, you know, pay parity. I would say men are not my problem. They are with me. You know what I mean? They want the same things that I want, especially this generation. You know, they want to spend time with their kids. They want to take care of them. They want to have time off when when their babies are born. They don't want to get penalized or put off their career track when they do. And so I think what men have to do is like stand shoulder to shoulder, or if not be even bolder, right? About asking about policies take your paid leave, period, all of it. And when they gaslight you for it, call them on it, (laughs) right? It's like, just do that. And so I think that it begins with changing this culture of care. I joke that like my dream is like the next Super Bowl ad to have LeBron James and like Steph Curry, you know, do the laundry. We got to make care work sexy. And it's, you know, it's fascinating because I do think that like, you know, when, when if you've ever been on a call and, and like Tom's like, I got to go pick up my kid. We're like, oh my God, you're so great, Tom. We love you. Yes. Right. It's like, we like, we're here for doing the bare minimum. Like, I'm like, great. Like, yes, we need to like do the same thing for her, 
right? When, when we then apologize because our kid jumps into our Zoom or we say we got to go, you know, go pick up our kid from school. I, I also think like someone told me a story that we need to be like, take a bow, Rashma. Take a bow because you're an awesome mom. We have to do the same thing for her that we do for him. And we have to catch ourselves kind of in our bias. Mm. You know, like I, I know so many women are like starting companies and when they're raising money from VCs, they'll be like, are oh, so you going to have a kid soon? And we know what they're asking. They want to know, yeah. like, is there a risk in me basically investing in your company? So all the times that those come, and I think the thing is, Vivian, millennials are starting to have children mm-hmm. and y'all like aren't going to put up with the same shit we put up with. Just, <laughs> and I'm so excited. Like I just am like getting my popcorn and just like waiting. You know what I mean? For this massive boom to happen. Because I think that like, you're going to come see what we see. And instead of being silent, you're going to be fierce. And so my job, I feel like is to equip people coming to be like, here are the things you got to fight for. Here are the things you got to look out for. And I think the thing that's so awesome about this issue is like, it's going from the margins to the mainstream. You know, like people are recognizing that this is as fundamental as climate change. You know, it is as fundamental to gender and it's happening across the globe and it's not rocket science, you know, unlike climate change. It's something that we can actually do a do and solve. And the world I describe is like not freaking a utopia. It's Norway. You know, there are examples of, of people, of women, of families living like this, not so far away from us. And they're happy and they're joyful and they're satisfied and they're living longer. The same way that you are proud of like the millennial generation is how I feel about Gen Z. I just feel like they're so much smarter, bolder, like more demanding of what they are worth than my generation is. So I totally agree. We're all getting a little better and it's almost like we need a world that's just a little softer. You know, we we gotta slow it down. And I, I was thinking about this, you know, it's just in this moment we're in, we're like kind of entering this like, this portal shit. When I see what's happening in Tennessee and these kids in like Florida and just organizing and demanding and just strong and clear, just morally clear about what they're going to tolerate in the world that they live in, that they own, that they built. You know, it's like all of our responsibilities just to step aside and be like, go, well, how can I help you? What can yeah. I do? You know, and, and so I do think I'm excited about what's kind of happening, but I think what's in to do that, we have to come back to our values. So, you know, I think about like my parents came here as refugees and they came with nothing and they were literally let in by people in the Catholic church charities who helped them get an apartment that showed them how to use the laundry machine. They gave their children clothes, food to eat. And I often wonder like, are we so jaded as a country that like that couldn't happen today? And I still mm. think it is happening in pockets of the country. And we have to call out that behavior. You know, we have to call out that spirit of generosity when we see people taking care of one another and say, thank you. Yes. That's who we want to be. And that's why this point about care is so fundamental. It's so important because it's how we treat each other, you know, is is how we're going to be judged. Yeah. Wow. This has been one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever personally had. But I do want to pivot uh, quickly because I know we are wrapping up. What is the one piece of advice you'd want our listener to take away from our conversation today? What is the one thing you wish you could impart onto, you know, 25-year-old Reshma? Take care of yourself. Put yourself first. You know, I'm, I'm working on, I get to give two commencement speeches this year and I've been some, thinking a lot about this. And, you know, I, I thought when I, was, when I was growing up, I cared about my grades. I cared about my future. I cared about what schools I was going to get into. And I burned out. And so many times throughout my life, because I was caring about the external, I just 
and never caring about myself and my health, it burned out. I burned out. And so now it's like, you got to, I want people to build the practice when they're young about putting themselves first, finding themselves joy, you know, meditating, walking, laughing, playing, right? Because that space is not just important so you can rest and heal, but so you can create. You know, I am constantly editing, even now, like my calendar or saying no. Oh man, I don't do that. I need to do that. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to do big things. You're spending your time, Vivian, teaching so many, like such an important lesson. And so if you're constantly as my, as I would say this mind body loop, and you're just doing and doing and doing and doing and doing, you don't have moment to create the space. Sometimes it's just sitting outside on a bench gives you the answer from hearing the birds sing. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I mean? And so like finding moments just to be quiet, to think, to laugh. That is what I want people to do and find. Get off the wheel. Stop hustling. No more hustle culture. No, because it's like, it's not serving us. And that's not what we need right now. We need to do things differently. And so we need yeah. people to actually reinvent. You know, we're still kind of on this, uh, my, you know, on this like 1985 tip, right? How do I start a business? How do I like become like president? How do I like be a bit banker? Like, no, 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 no. All those structures are irrelevant. Irrelevant. How do we build completely new things? How do we have a completely new vision? How do we like turn it upside down. And that means you just need, you need time to just to, to create and to be inspired and to feel. And listen, I'm giving advice on something I am not good at, but I am like, (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Like, it's not like you won't find me on the bench. You know what I mean? In the middle of Madison square park, I want to be like, I want to be, you know, I want to be, I want to be having that time. And so I'm just constantly trying to remind myself and remind others to like, let's build that world. Awesome. And you mentioned, you know, building something completely new. You said that you're taking a step back from Girls Who Code to pursue other things. Tell us what's next for Rashma Sajani. Listen, I mean, my life is about women and girls and, and fighting that fight and fighting the fight for like the underserved. And so at moments in my life, I have found the issue that I've wanted to rally around and to build. And so it was Girls Who Code because at that time in 2010, it was tech. And today it's moms first, because I believe, again, the core of solving gender equality is getting paid leave and affordable childcare for as many, you know, as many women, as many families as we possibly can. And it's really freaking hard, Vivian. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I didn't think it was going to be that way. Because again, it's so baked into our culture, our perceptions about motherhood and about what you should get and how you should do it. And so changing that is like moving a boulder up a mountain. And that's what makes me so excited. I love hard things. I love hard things. And I love also problems that I know that I could solve in my lifetime. And I think it's going to be a really powerful moment when we all kind of sit back and we like, we got paid leave done in our country. We made childcare affordable for every single family. Like that is going to be an incredible moment and it's going and it's coming. That's awesome. And I know everyone listening definitely wants to follow you along your journey. Please tell us where we can find you and please mention the names of your books. You know, I am a big fan. I was already, you know, shouting you out but I want people to go find them and read yep. these books. They are so good. So follow me on Instagram and IG uh, at Rashma Sajani and follow my organization at Moms First. Please read my latest book, Pay Up and Brave Not Perfect, which was my book before that. And if you're interested in coding, uh, pick up Girls Who Code. It was a banned book. So there's another reason why you should buy it. Ooh. So, but thank you so much, Vivian. It was great talking to you. Of course. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. 
If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at Your Rich BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!